Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren, a producer on the show. Darts and Letters is a podcast about the politics of ideas, and we're so excited to have joined the New Books Network this summer. To celebrate, we've been doing weekly themed programming every single week, bringing you some of our favorite past episodes. This week, we're taking a look at right-wing politics from a left point of view. We're kicking off the week with one of the quintessential symbols of rural conservative masculinity, the truck. Our host, Gordon Kadic, talks to a logging trucker and more as he unpacks the political history and potential future of the trucking industry. We hope you've been enjoying our summer programming. Remember, we're launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters right here on the network later this month. Stay tuned. And with that, I will pass it on to Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadic. I want to tell you a story about a man who sells auto parts. His name is David Ham. When you go to his website, you will see this video introduction. It starts with a garage door, and then that door opens onto another garage door. He walks into frame and you see he's a round guy with a tight haircut and an old school mustache. David is basically a southern dad. Hey, hi, how you doing? I'm David. He sells a rather specialized auto part. Premium novelty testicles. His store is called yournuts.com. That's with a Z. Him and his team sell all things truck nuts. Now, most of you are familiar with the 8-inch sized ear nuts. These were the original nuts on the net, the ones that started it all. Unfortunately, they just didn't have it for the lifted trucks. So David went back to the shop and developed these, the 16-inch monster truck nuts. They come in five different colors. You got flesh, you got black, and of course, we got the blue balls. We won't ask my wife where we came up with the idea for this one. You can pick up a pair of these big, veiny plastic balls for 50 US dollars, plus shipping and handling. Imagine the looks you'll get with these bad boys dangling in front of mama's face on the freeway. The story of Truck Nuts tells you just about everything you need to know about the cultural politics of pickup trucks. This is a story of conservative identity politics, of moralistic liberal reaction, and of conservative counter-reaction. Between all that, cynical profiteers like David Ham. But there's a problem with David's business. He didn't happen to patent these testicles. I'm not really sure you can patent plastic testicles. Though David does claim he's the first person to mass-produce them. John Saller begs to differ. John owns BullsBalls.com, a competitor. 
And he says he invented the original truck nuts. He got the idea one day when he was riding his 4x4 and a buddy yelled to him, show him you got balls. That was the eureka moment. That's when John says that the idea of truck nuts was born. The story of David and John descends into this bizarre Tiger King-style feud. It's mostly played out on old Web 1.0 websites with detailed anatomical discussions about who makes the best balls. You're probably thinking to yourself, why would anyone buy this crap? These are just dumb rednecks exhibiting their toxic masculinity. But there's a twist. It's not really that at all. In fact, the podcast Dakota Ring did their investigation on this, and they tried to figure out who actually buys truck nuts. They couldn't seem to find anyone who takes them seriously. The demographic is not macho rednecks, it's self-aware rednecks. These are irony-obsessed truck drivers who are lampooning the idea of the macho redneck. It's not that they're toxic misogynists. It's that we think they are, and they're responding to that. The podcast even has a professor on who likens truck nuts to camp in the gay community. The problem is, nobody got the joke. Everyone just got mad. In the early 2000s, this gag gift got caught in a political firestorm. There were a few legislative attempts to outlaw truck nuts. One in Maryland, one in Virginia, and one in Florida. None of them worked. And then a 65-year-old South Carolina woman got a $445 ticket for hanging her truck nuts. And it became this debate about the nature of obscenity and the limits of free speech. There are literally lengthy discussions about these stories on law blogs. So where do you stand? Are you a truck nuts free speech absolutist? Well, whatever you think, in the end, grandma gets out of her ticket. So let them truck nuts swing. Sales explode, because predictably, when you tell people what they can't have, they're going to go out and try and buy it. And that's when the feud between Sallers and Ham really comes to matter. Because for these new customers, you wouldn't want to buy cheap imitation knockoff nuts. You want the real thing. So things get really intense between Ham and Sallers. Ham goes so far as to do a bit of industrial espionage, and he comes up with an alias, Bozzy Willis. Willis goes to Saller and buys a bunch of Saller's nuts, and then he resells them on a new website, allthenuts.com. This is totally without permission. Ham's scheme here is basically to become a nuts reseller. He wants his website to be the one-stop shop for all things truck nuts. This feud continues for years. It is back and forth in increasingly hostile screeds. Fake online reviews, complaints, charges of defamation, sociopathy, cease and desist letters, it's no joke. In the end, I really don't know who made the original truck nuts. I don't think anyone does. There was a few stories about this, including this one in Vice, which I'll link to, but as far as I can tell, nobody reached a definitive conclusion. Eventually, Saller and his team stepped back from the fight, mostly for health reasons. Unfortunately, Saller and one of his business partners passed away. I guess that kind of makes Ham the de facto winner in the war of the truck nuts. But he wasn't gracious about it. Ham's reaction, quote, I read that both his web guy and Saller had passed away. And I thought, whoa, they're dead? That's amazing. 
Today on Darts and Letters, we look at the cultural and political history of the truck. We'll be talking about why pickup trucks are now front and center in Canadian conservative politics. I'll ask Matt Christman of Chapo Trap House why the truck reigns as the symbol of conservative masculinity. Because it stands for all the stuff that uh, liberalism is against, the liberal Puritan hostility to excess. And here is something that embodies every idea of liberty that one could imagine. What's even bigger than a pickup truck? A semi. Shane Hamilton tells us about the political economy of the trucking industry. Trucks themselves ushered in a new Walmart economy. In this new economy, farmers suffered and moved onto the road. They became independent owner-operators. They didn't feel like their voice was being represented by either Democrats or Republicans. Trucking was a way of kind of representing, well, you could take control of your own destiny, this giant machine, and be in charge. Plus, cars and trucks made our modern world, our modern unsustainable world. The question is, can we unmake it? Or will we just try and come up with an electric techno fix? In fact, that's exactly what's happening. Because right now, you can buy Cybertruck nuts for your Tesla. And guess what? There's even a petty feud about those. Because the more things change, the more things stay the same. I speak with architectural historian Gabrielle Esperdy about the idea of utopia and about why the fantasy can never die. The electric vehicle is very much like the Japanese import in the 70s. It's this notion of, yeah, yeah, we don't have to change anything except shift to electric. Literally, we've been down this road before. If we all had electric vehicles, it's not actually going to solve our social problems. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Pickup trucks are now front and center in Canadian politics. In recent history, the story starts around 2016. Jason Kenney was then running to be Premier of Alberta, and he rode in on a truck. Morning, I'm Jason Kenney, and uh, great to be out here on the August long weekend. We'll be campaigning across the province in my uh, blue Dodge Ram pickup right here. So this is a grassroots listening campaign. That Ram pickup is the number two selling car in this country. The Ford F-Series is number one. In fact, it has been for over 50 years. So it's no wonder conservatives will run on trucks. It's just good politics because Canadians love trucks. Fast forward a few years, and of course we have the so-called Freedom Convoy, And again, the truck becomes a symbol of a kind of rural conservative freedom. Since then, the Conservative Party of Canada has really latched on to the truck. One of the candidates for leadership even made a campaign ad that looks and sounds like an ad for a pickup truck. 
The ad starts with MP Scott Atchison wearing a flannel shirt and getting into his truck. There is no irony here. The message is simple. This is a real man, a man who gets things done. Then there was this strange fake scandal. Some federal government panel recommended applying a tax onto new trucks. The liberals didn't actually plan to accept that recommendation, but this did not stop conservatives from throwing fits on Twitter. So to understand why conservatives love their trucks and why we love to hate them, I called up Matt Chrisman. He is one of the hosts of the podcast Chapo Trap House. Thanks for having me. I'm curious just to get us kind of situated as like me being basically an effete urbanite who lives in downtown Toronto and never really knowing the pleasures of having like a big truck. You know, my first <laughs> car was a was a 99 Volkswagen Golf, a little red thing that my mom gave me. So that's who I am. But I'm wondering just to, to know a little bit more about you. Are you, I know you're, you're from Wisconsin, which is maybe a little bit more truck country than where you live now. Did, did you ever, were you ever like a car guy or a truck guy? No, no. I had a Ford Taurus <laughs> in high school. Uh, I never had a truck. My stepfather was a truck driver though for many years, like 18 wheelers. Enough. So I, I rode in trucks certainly, but I never had any kind of specific cultural affinity for them. I mean, it was... That was part of the whole cultural package of things that I kind of grew up defining myself against. Mm. The culture of like automobiles in general just felt very wasteful. And I, I guess it just I never had the the emotional connection or the identity connection to them. I, it was easier to just, yeah, define myself by someone who was not, you know, I mean, I was a pretentious teenager, so I more than anything I wanted to distinguish myself in some way. So <laughs> that was an easy way to do it. Fair enough, weren't we all? Yeah. So I did I did some very, very deep research, and here's what I found. The state of Wisconsin, which I know that you're from, here are the top five cars. The Ford F-Series, the Chevrolet Silverado, the Ram 1500, 2500, and 3500, the Chevrolet Equinox, and the Honda CRV. So the top four trucks, the fifth is an SUV. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, you're in California now. Here are the top five cars. The Honda Civic, the Tesla Model 3, the Honda Accord, the Toyota Camry, and the Toyota RAV3. So not a truck in sight. Yeah. Uh, the SUV in, in number five spot. So I'm curious about, I mean, I know there's probably somewhere in between before you ended up in California, but what's it like going from a kind of a truck state to a not truck state, and how, how how are those things different? It's just the pretensions of rich people are different. That's all. <laughs> that's what it boils down to. Like people who want to imagine themselves to be independent, free, mm -hmm. or people who would rather imagine themselves to be conscientious and and virtuous in some way. I think I'll take obnoxious right wing truck culture over Tesla culture any day. But I guess that's my that's my cultural prejudice. But it does kind of speak to what I really wanted to talk to you about as the truck being this sort of symbol of right-wing politics and why, why exactly that is. So I'm, I'm just curious in, in your mind, why do you think the, the truck in particular has taken on such a kind of right-wing political valence? Well, because it stands for all the stuff that liberalism is against, forgetting you know, the increasing liberal hostility to automobile culture in general, you've got the liberal Puritan hostility to excess. And here is something that embodies 
every idea of liberty that one could imagine because it's a, a vehicle, private vehicle that you can take wherever you want to go and that can be as big as you want it to be and that there is no outward restraint on any of those things. And you can uh, emphasize in your purchase your contempt for the the new liberal pieties around restraint and, and, and good taste and morality and instead affirm uh, values of individual autonomy and status to show mm-hmm. through the size of your truck your power one way or the other, either your purchasing power or or just viscerally the, the power of the engine itself. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I really like on Chapo recently, maybe not recently, but for a long time, is kind of this... The kind of dualities and and the the way that these two cultures have themselves in symbiosis, you know, the kind of right wing culture war and the liberal response and the spectacle of this is so looking at the truck story through this lens. It's so that's so obviously true, because, I mean, Jason Kenney when he started his campaign would would rail against these Toronto columnists like besmirching his truck and he would ride into campaign events with his truck and make that his, you know, his Twitter profile pic. And, you know, and it got me thinking about how how much that might actually be more more than anything the the impetus here. It's like the truck is there to piss off the libs, you know, hang mm-hmm. those nuts off the truck and the libs will hate it. Uh, and the libs then will will attack the truck as the sort of symbol of excess. And I'm wondering how, why in particular that has become this kind of Rorschach test because the SUV doesn't necessarily polarize in the same way. You can think about how other things might not be coded in the same way, but the truck is this sort of potent symbol. Well, I mean, uh, the SUV is, there was a while there where after the SUV first was introduced that you saw it as sort of a totem of, of suburban mastery. But, you know, it's also supposed to drive a family around and, and that kind of undermines its ability to be a fully embodied symbol of, of, you know, pure individual virility the way that a truck can. At every any given point, there has to be some uh, consumer choice that someone can make to express an identity that can stand in for all the freedoms that they absolutely do not possess and are unable to exercise, but which they hold very dearly in the abstract. And one of the big reasons that people, I think, get so protective about their trucks and the idea of the the liberals coming to you know re- regulate their fuel mileage or something is that is that they don't imagine that as 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 some sort of uh, scheme to you know protect the environment or anything, but just as a assault on these freedoms. Because in the absence of the truck, all you have is a life that is wildly curtailed in all the ways that you don't want to think about. So when you say it's sort of a symbol for people's freedom, do you think of that as a kind of like like a false consciousness in a sense or in a crude sense? Or do you think that people actually sort of might actually love their truck or is it simply kind of a symbol of something? I mean, they do love love the trucks because it might be a totem of a freedom they don't have, but it is still a real object. It's a real thing that they can interact with that they can fetishize. And in the absence of it, it's not as though uh, if, you know, their trucks were taken away from them and they were forced to drive hybrids or something that they would have more freedom. They would have less. Mm. The thing here is, is that, what the uh, liberal state is offering people is not perceived in any way as an exchange worth worthy of making it. 
it's perceived purely as a reduction of, of one's options in life because things just don't get better no matter what they do. So, you know, things like the truck you drive is is much more tangible and more psychologically validating than than any abstract value that's going to come from regulations, which at the end of the day really don't add up to any real change in conditions for anybody for the better. It's a classic uh, problem in environmental politics, right? The, the, the politics of less, the politics of what you can't do in that sort of like cultural mode of liberalism. So I'm curious, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you it anyways. How do we as like people on the left end up like appealing then? What, what can we do to get the people that have that sort of cultural valence on, on our side? I, I mean, I, I don't know if you can on these issues because they are already fully processed along cultural lines. And uh, those lines, I, at this point, I don't think are really permeable. Mm. Uh, I think they're like existentially defining for people. If there's going to be a left in the future, it's going to be one that comes at all of the questions that are now uh, at the front of politics from the side, from uh, or orthogonally, organized around more practical questions of la- of workplace and in labor organizing. I think. I mean, maybe somebody has a better idea, but I'll admit I don't. I think you've got a large group of people who have made the rational choice that politics is meaningless and then not worth caring about or paying too much attention to. And then you have two groups of people, frankly, irrationally committed to performing politics as part of a broader cultural identity that they are placing existential energy behind. And it's essentially sublimating all of the real material anxiety they feel in declining conditions, but which finds no political outlet because no political project that has any Mm -hmm. sort of mainstream buy-in can speak to it. So this, the cultural value system becomes the only thing worth defending and supporting. And, and I, yeah, if, if, if you, if the truck is part of your identity, I don't think you can convince somebody that there is a reason that they should take the, take that away from them. That's going to be convincing because who would be that person? I wanted to go back to sort of like the truck culture of the 70s, which really crystallizes a lot of this. And, you know, the movies like Smokey and the Bandit and Convoy and, you know, and others. I'm curious about the trucker being kind of like the new cowboy of the open road in opposition to the organizational man as, and the PMC. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that sort of duality and, and how those cultures came about. The crisis of the 70s was the the eclipse of the industrial working class and uh, its replacement by a knowledge economy. And the offer to people coming into maturity at that point was either insecure employment, if you were able to find employment at all, none of the benefits and security that had come from the old Fordist compromise era, unless you were willing to go to college, get educated, become a manager or a a knowledge worker of some kind. And if you were not uh, temperamentally uh, suited for that kind of work, the only real alternative to, to those two options was something like being a truck driver, the same way that 
the cowboy exemplified an era in the late 1800s when, you know, the factory system was coming into full dominance and proletarianization was accelerating. The, the cowboy is a, is a worker who is not subject to industrial space and time discipline. Truck driver is the same thing in the neoliberal era. A worker who is able to set their own schedule and to work without direct supervision, which is the closest thing you can find to freedom in the wage relationship. Why do you think this moment like ended sort of, I mean, not just on a policy level, but on a, on a kind of cultural level? You know, we don't have the same kind of lionizing of, uh, of truck drivers as we did in the 70s. And um, yeah, what, what do you think accounts for that sort of shift? I think the financialization of the economy turned that next frontier fantasy of, of someone who doesn't want to work in an office but wants to be able to live securely and get a house and stuff like that moves to finance and to the yeah. speculative economy of stocks in the 80s and then now it's cryptocurrency or whatever. These are the, the, the last frontiers of, that allow for people to imagine a way out uh, and that don't even require having to drive a truck. Have you ever seen these like van life people? I mean, it's mm, not a truck, yeah. but it's a van, but it, it's basically the same thing where, you know, they're on Instagram and they've got their little office that they work just like off of the, the hood of their car or off the dash of their car. And they've got this sort of uh, beautiful vista and it, it's coded as like kind of liberal because it's often very environmentally kind of friendly and, you know, at least it is on Instagram. But it, it strikes me as a very similar kind of, I guess, escape as the truck driver, the cowboy, but, but, but different. Yeah. I mean, and, and there, like with cryptocurrency, you're seeing how like the productive economy is sort of being totally eclipsed. They're driving around. They're not taking anything anywhere. They're just taking pictures of themselves <laughs> driving and then using that to secure a sponsorship from companies that they can advertise with. <laughs> right. That, that is absolutely right. Yeah. The uh, custom furniture companies where you can build something in, uh, in, on the dash of your car. Well, I guess, Matt, sort of wrapping up here, now that you're in, uh, you're in California, right? I mean, what are you driving? Are, are you going to get yourself like a big car in the suburbs or what, <laughs> what, what's your relationship to cars like now? Uh, I've got an old van, actually, <laughs> that I do not Instagram that was used to drive out here. And I, yeah, I, I don't think I will be becoming a, a influencer, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> That's funny. That was Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. I'd also recommend you check out the podcast Bottleman. Matt was a guest on the show a few months ago, and they did a two-part episode about the Freedom Convoy, and they talked a lot more about 70s trucking culture. Check it out. If the pickup truck is a symbol of conservative masculinity, well, then the semi is the apogee. But it wasn't always that way. It became that way because of a series of technological developments, regulatory changes, and broader political economic shifts. We'll get to that. But first, we wanted to hear a little bit from truckers themselves. Oh, honestly, I love truck driving. I started truck driving right after high school. As soon as I turned 19, I got my class one. This is Chase Barber. Chase is a logging trucker from Merritt, BC, and he's been doing it for over 14 years. Where I then went and did a little bit of long haul, and after about two years of that, I decided to go to university. Went to school for economics, so 
Two years of driving meant I had no student loans whatsoever, and I was able to live quite comfortably by saving my money. Did four years, I ended up with like a 4.0 GPA. Like, I did really well, and not bragging, but just to give context to the story, is that after that, I entered a contest for the Bank of Canada for economic forecasting. They gave me a job offer because I got second place. And that job offer in Ottawa was $45,000 a year to start as like a junior economist. I made $50,000 the summer before running a winch tractor in Alberta moving drilling rigs. Chase has become kind of internet famous through this viral TikTok account. Politically, I'd guess you'd call him kind of a heterodox guy. He's sort of culturally conservative, but he complains about corporations and posts things about environmental policy and public transit. Like, here's a recent video. Oh, for sure. We definitely need better public transit in North America. Especially if you love driving. Like, if you love driving a truck or a car, you should really be advocating for better public transit. More buses, more trains. Oh, and we should be building dedicated protected bike lanes so more people feel safe riding bikes. Therefore, more people... I've had people that go into trucking and they view it as like, oh, well, this is a good job for somebody with low education hold a steering wheel. I've met other brilliant people that came out of university, people with PhDs that go into trucking because they enjoy the time to think. Like, I love trucking because I can listen to podcasts. I can sit and listen to different audio books. And like, I can learn all day and think about things. So I think truckers are in this unique perspective where you have 15 hours a day to sit by yourself, look at the road and think about different politics, different things. And there's such a wider range of backgrounds as people think through issues. He's hard to pigeonhole. He's definitely left wing on environmental issues. He got the facts. And he got annoyed with some of the convoy stuff, but he also understood a lot of it. Chase got super frustrated with some COVID restrictions, like when they closed the rest areas. And they said, well, we're essential and it doesn't matter, but truckers couldn't get showers anymore. They couldn't use public washrooms. Like when you're living in a truck on the road, we needed those public washrooms, but they're like, it's so essential to stop COVID and you guys need to keep moving if you don't, so go without the washroom, shit in the bush, go weeks without showering, because you need to get moving. A producer, Mark, asked Chase how he felt about this strange cultural fascination with pickup trucks and these new trendy electric pickups. I think it's a little bit ridiculous. Not everybody that lives in downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver, and all these places need pickup trucks. Like, there's a, some great cases to have pickup trucks. Farmers, loggers, ranchers, tradesmen that need those trucks for work and hauling, but the average person buying them as a daily driver doesn't make sense. And then we get into the issues where EVs aren't perfectly clean, that lithium battery mining is incredibly environmentally intrusive to have all those mines. They can't tow heavy loads because they run out of range, so it doesn't make sense for that yet. I don't know why they keep pushing all these electric vehicles, electric pickups, electric cars, when realistically, we should just be pushing electric trains if we're worried about the environment. Chase isn't a big booster of electric pickups, but he's actually trying to build an electric semi because he says trains can't get you everywhere you need to go. His company is called Edison Motors. He's stealing Tesla's concept and trying to make it his own. It's kind of an inside joke because Edison stole from Nikola Tesla. As somebody from where Nikola Tesla is from, I certainly appreciate the joke. The more and more I read about truckers, the more and more I realize they're kind of all like this. 
It's a grab bag. Nobody's exactly what you expect them to be, and the trucking industry isn't really what you think it is. Like, for example, right now, the demographics are really shifting. The trucking industry is an increasingly immigrant one, and it's a lot more tightly regulated and surveilled than it used to be. It used to be wild. You go to like any truck stop, you know, they still have caffeine pills that you can buy, but as far as like the, the days of like guys in Jersey smoking meth and then running to Colorado and back over a weekend, those, those days are done. You know, the, the cowboy stuff is long gone. This is Justin Martin. He's a trucker from Philadelphia. He drove for 15 years, he used to work for the Postal Service. Now he works at a news organization that does stories about the freight industry and about supply chain stuff. The biggest changes these days are all like the electronic logs. In the beginning, we still had paper logs. You could run two log books, a lot of like, you know, the sneaky guys would do that. Mark asked him to break down the industry for us. There's basically three kinds of truck drivers today. There's the company drivers. So when you're a company driver, you're an employee, they're paying your, ta- your payroll taxes and all that for you. You're not paying for your diesel, you're not paying for your insurance, you're just, you're just meat in the seat. They tell you where to go, they tell you what to pick up, they tell you when to be, wherever you gotta be. Then you have lease operators who are, they're still employed by that company, but the company considers them independent contractors. They're usually 1099, but you're paying for your diesel, you're paying for your insurance, you're paying for the maintenance costs in your truck, and you're also paying the company um, the lease on the truck. That's, that's the little scam that they, they run on you. It's like, they'll buy the trucks at like a fleet rate discount from the dealerships, and then they, they lease the truck to the drivers under the uh, auspices of like, hey, you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be your own boss, you're gonna be your own company, blah, blah, no. And then even further beyond that, you'll have guys that run under their own authority. So they really are their own trucking company, their own LLC, they own everything. They um, sign up for load boards, you know, there's just websites that have loads going from A to B, you pick what you want, and you're, in that case, you really are your own boss. Plenty of money to be made doing that, but it's you get all the risk and all the reward. That's the landscape now, but it wasn't always that way. Truckers used to be mostly unionized. Today, they mostly don't like unions, and Justin is no exception. So how and why did this industry change? And what can we learn about modern political economy through that change? For that, I called up Shane Hamilton. Trucking becomes an industry starting in the 1920s. Before that, trucks were nothing like what we would think of them today. They're very small. You know, you could carry goods. But railroads, by and large, appreciated the kind of emerging trucking industry because all the trucks really did was get the goods that kind of last mile in our current parlance, right? Shane is author of an excellent book called Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy. But then from the 1920s onward, various trucking businesses start taking longer and longer trips. They get bigger and bigger machines. The roads are paid for by federal and state subsidies, enables the expansion of this industry, such that there's actually kind of hyper competition in the 1920s. There's too many trucking firms. And so in come a number of players to basically try and rationalize the industry, both from government side and from bigger trucking firms, trying to limit the competition. And they do so passing the helping Congress pass the uh, Motor Carrier Act of 1935, which imposes a variety of regulations on the industry to try and consolidate it basically and make it less cutthroat competitive. One of the consequences of that, not necessarily intended, but it is an important consequence, was that the Teamsters Union, which previously had represented more like, you know, coal deliverers and, you know, milk deliverers and so forth, 
gets in on long haul trucking through some pretty amazing tactics, organizing tactics as well, leapfrogging and so forth, taking control of distribution centers. And so by the 1940s through into the late 1960s, you've got this consolidated, well-organized, largely unionized industry that is competing with railroads to deliver freight, paying good wages to most of the truck drivers who are actually overwhelmingly male, actually 98%, I think, was one of the statistics I had of, of maleness in the industry. Overwhelmingly white as well, and particularly in the Teamsters Union. But the wages are good. The industry is relatively stable and consolidated. And for many of the drivers, it's, it's not a bad job. It's actually quite a good job with regular hours. It's regulated in a way for their safety and for the safety of others on the road. One of the other interesting things I wanted to ask you about on the kind of policy front is the sort of truck as technology, you know, the, the, the truck itself, the refrigeration. In what ways did the government maybe play a role in sort of developing and, and championing the development of this kind of new technology? Yeah, well, a lot of what I focus on in the book is actually the ways in which the expansion of long-haul trucking was conjoined with the industrialization of American agriculture. So one of the features of industrialization of agriculture, it's not just about kind of large-scale farms, although that's part of it. It's also about transformations of foods, increasingly processed foods and meeting the desires of consumers, you know, increasingly buying from supermarkets to have out-of-season produce at any time of year. The trick of making that possible is really about having reliable refrigeration, keeping the, the food cold all the way from producer to consumer. And railroads actually just were not very good at doing that. Even in the mid-20th century, they were relying on kind of antiquated technology. Trucking firms relied on government research and private industry to develop so-called reefers, refrigerated trailers that we now see. They're omnipresent, of course, everywhere. That enables that kind of shipment of foods from all over the world in you know, a very kind of hyper-flexible model straight to supermarket buyers. And consumers have this increasing expectation for affordable, quality foods. This is in many ways part of the, the American dream of the 20th century that, you know, basic commodities will be abundant and abundantly available. That's really interesting. And the other connection is that a lot of these truckers are farmers or were farmers, I suppose. Could you tell me a little bit about the connection between the farm and the truck? Well, right. That's driven in large part by the industrialization of agriculture. You need fewer and fewer people actually working on farms to, you know, to grow and harvest the goods. But with this industrialized food system, you need more and more people to distribute it. It's almost this kind of natural movement, or it seems natural, that farm uh, boys, by and large, many of whom started out kind of hauling things like milk from their dairy farm to the local creamery in cans, so they're, they're used to driving. They go into long-haul trucking, and they kind of bring this rural sensibility, this rural sense of manhood into the industry with them. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how that, that plays out in the culture. I mean, one of the early uh, cultural sort of touchstones um, in your book is a Humphrey Bogart movie called They Drive by Night. I always have liked redheads. You shouldn't. Red means stop. I'm colorblind. You've been horsing us around long enough. We ought to break your crummy neck for leaving us stuck out in the road with a busted wheel and lifting our load. What do you want me to do? Dig into my pocket? You owe us 300 bucks, children, and you're going to pay us now if you don't. Oh, all right, all right. Well, you're not getting out. You belong with me, and you're going to stay with me. Only you're not going off marrying that kid. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a noir film, and it's directed by Raoul Walsh, so it has actually this social consciousness vision embedded in it. And 
what it portrays is some fly-by-night truckers. So this is a, a concept of kind of truckers who are evading the regulated structure of the, the big industry. So you've got these kind of little guy, you know, petty capitalists, basically, taking on the man, you know, big industry, and facing violent consequences for doing so, basically. They don't, uh, there's a heroic end, but they, they face various um, challenges along the way, let's say. <laughs> Which is a bit of a theme in a lot of the country, uh, a lot of the um, trucking films and shows and so forth, is this kind of concept of the trucker as a little guy, even though, of course, he's always physically large and, you know, kind of larger than life in a kind of cultural sense. I'm curious about the country music. I mean, one of the things that surfaces in this country music, and we talk about a couple of the songs in general, but I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of... Um, tension, I guess, or paradox where there's a romanticism for the road, but also a yearning to be home um, and to mm. return. Um, you haven't seen your your wife and your family in so long. What was your favorite of the country songs that, that you looked at in the book? Oh, gosh, do I have a favorite? Um, you know, I like some of the older kind of Western swing tunes, to be honest, some of the earliest ones where they're just pioneering the genre. Um, but of course, the the most representative ones are like Dave Dudley's Six Days on the Road, which has been covered by you know, so many different artists. Just this iconic song. When I pulled out of Pittsburgh, rolling down that eastern seaboard, I got my diesel wound up and she's a running like I never before. There's a speed's on her head, well, all right. I don't see a cop in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. It's actually written by, I mean, it's made famous by Dave Dudley, but uh, written by a couple of Georgia workers who thought they could make some money, basically, mm. off of using the kind of lingo of the truckers that they witnessed uh, and, you know, incorporating that in a song. So in some ways, a lot of the, the, the trucking songs are actually just kind of crassly commercial. Mm. You know, you could dismiss them as just trying to to cash in on a kind of existence of this large population of, of, of individuals who happen to listen to country music. But I suggest there is something deeper that representation, as you say, of kind of negotiating an identity between wanting to be home but being out on the road. On the one hand, there's this freedom envisioned of, you know, the king of the open road and so forth. It's a constant theme in the songs but also of being rooted in a rural sensibility, rooted literally in a, in a home, in a place. And so there is that ongoing tension. And that's also reflected in the kind of bifurcation of the industry between the, the mainstream, unionized, re highly regulated workforce, where by and large, those workers are not long haul drivers. They are, they're getting paid well and they go home, you know, every night. And then these kind of open road truckers who are, by and large, for various reasons I explore, exempt from a lot of regulations. They're much more likely to be kind of from rural America. They're the ones who might be seen to have more freedom, but whether that's the freedom that they really want is something to think about. To what extent are the truckers themselves and their culture pushing for this versus to what extent is it, you know, the consequences of things that are outside of their control? I think you're asking about the push for deregulation in the 1970s, mm -hmm. which emerges partly, I argue, from this kind of rural masculine sensibility, this kind of rejection of both the state and of big business as kind of arbiters of one's existence and also of organized labor. 
Whether they fully understood what they were going to get from deregulation is, I think, still an open question. But many of the proponents of it, including Mike Parkhurst, was a major figure. He uh, started a little magazine called Overdrive, which, at least in the 1960s and 70s, was this um, really bizarre anarcho-populist publication that, you know, truckers would pick up on a uh, a shelf at the at the truck stop. Now it's this glossy magazine that uh, you know looks like any other kind of uh, magazine. I mean, what's his story? I, I, I'm just curious a little bit more about him. I mean, yes, his politics are kind of fascinating. How do they emerge? Well, he himself was a long haul trucker who um, came to despise the Teamsters in particular, but also just big uh, organized um, trucking companies. Because he imagined himself as an entrepreneur, effectively, as an individual proprietor, and that that's what he valued in trucking, that he could own his own truck, go out and seek his own routes and, you know, haul the freight that he wanted and make a living doing that. He saw that being uh, that freedom, that sense of freedom being um, taken away by organized labor and by organized capital. The Teamsters were kind of like an ossified and it's kind of, you know, like a cartel essentially in, in a lot of ways, right? Were, were the legitimate reasons why they felt that they were being sort of excluded from, from this economy? The question is whether independent truckers, non-unionized truckers yeah. felt excluded from the economy. Yes, I think to some extent, although in the 1960s, I, I have data in the book showing that these independent truckers are actually doing really quite well. Uh, that it was an era where they actually benefited from regulatory structures and unionized wage structures, including the National Master Freight Agreement negotiated by Jimmy Hoffa of the Teamsters, basically set a national expectation for wages for truck drivers across the entire United States. So in the 1960s, blue-collar truck driving was a good job. Whether you were unionized or not, if you were unionized, it was good because of the work that the Teamsters had done. And if you were not unionized, it was good because of the work the Teamsters had done. <laughs> and the general affordability of trucks, of, of fuel and so forth, it was, it, was, it was pretty good work. Our audience is probably pretty young and, and hasn't seen Smokey and the Bandit or Convoy, probably not even Dukes of Hazard. These are products at the, at the heyday of this trucking period. Could you tell me a little bit about them and, and what they what they reveal of this moment? In a way, Smokey and the Bandit and Dukes of Hazard, which are are related because they uh, they focused on the kind of stunts. Basically, they had come up with some new techniques for making cars and trucks jump off of ramps and stuff, and it was exciting. All right, Phil, hang on tight. This is going to be the closest thing to a parachute jump you've seen since you left the service. But they both also kind of celebrated this rural, southern, white, working class masculinity in ways that, from our contemporary perspective, are both, as you say, kind of of the moment. And it's like, wow, the 70s were a, a different place, right? <laughs> but also very representative of that, like what I was saying earlier, that sense of many, especially rural people, I think, rural working class people, that they kind of been left out of mainstream culture. But in the 70s, things like Smokey and the Bandit, Burt Reynolds, you know, always going around with his chest hair poking out of his shirt. Georgia to Texas and back in 28 hours flat with a truckload of bootleg beer. 
I'll be driving this one. Hey, yeah. Blocker. Blocker. You'll be driving the truck. This is Bandit 1, and that is uh, Bandit 2. <laughs> now, who would do a thing like that? <laughs> it was this kind of F you to the man, right? This, this idea that, you know, the little guy, by kind of being rowdy and breaking the rules and doing what he wants to, that's a kind of model for American masculinity. Somewhat, I mean, Convoy, 1978, with Chris Christopherson is, is intended to be somewhat similar, this kind of, you know, challenging mainstream norms. And it's intriguing that Chris Christopherson is in it because Chris Christopherson, his politics are actually quite left of center, and he's, he's very much a member of the counterculture, but he's also a country music uh, singer and, and songwriter. So he's, he's kind of hard to pin down. And in this movie, he plays this character called Rubber Duck. That's his uh, CB handle, Citizens Band Radio, the you know CB uh, trucking culture. And Rubber Duck ends up leading this convoy of truckers who are protesting. It's not exactly clear what. They're just kind of protesting the power structures of America, I guess. Uh, and what it represents, it's a bit unclear. Some film critics at the time thought it was just a, a god-awful movie. Uh, I think Pauline Kael at The New Yorker said it was like having a, you know, diesel exhaust piped into the cinema and having to suffer for two hours <laughs> but it, it resonates today it is this this bizarre kind of western almost this uh you know like the the man in the white hat taking on the the bad cops in town is this something that kind of only could have existed like in materially the um economic heyday because i mean the I really like the part in your book where you compare it to some of the sort of earlier country songs right where some of these at the heyday were kind of orgiastic and uh, very much romantic of kind of life on the road. Whereas in the earlier parts of that transition, there's a bit more complexity because of kind of the, you know, the tension we were talking about earlier in terms of leaving home. Where does that go? Why does that disappear from this culture in the TV and the movies of the 70s. The reality of, of actual trucking, you mean, disappears, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the loneliness, the, the kind of like uh, fleeing your community and your family because, I mean, the underlying sort of, you know, social shift or tension that we're talking about is farmers turning into truckers. Mm. And you see that tension reflected in the early period, but you don't see it later. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I point out is in that the 1970s, there's a lot of talk from kind of non-truckers about truckers being cowboys. Interesting. Whereas truck drivers themselves, the, the term cowboy means someone who doesn't know how to drive properly. Right. Uh, it's, it's a derogatory term. It's, it's the worst thing you could be. Truck drivers see themselves as doing a difficult job. And it is, it's an extremely difficult job. And as you say, it's isolating, it's lonely. So in some ways, it is actually like being an actual cowboy, because uh, all the historical professional historians who study cowboys point out that it's extremely drudgerous work. In fact, cowboys were among the first to seek uh, to join the Knights of Labor, an early uh, labor organization. Uh, they recognized the, the nature of their exploitation. It was not all just, you know, singing uh, songs about doggies out on the open <laughs> plains. It was difficult, boring mm. work. But how are you going to put that in a film? A Canadian audience is going to be familiar with the recent convoy, but they may not know of of those that happened in the early 70s and in 1979 as well. Set the stage for me. Why were truckers you know, driving down to Washington and what were truckers doing at the time? There was this concern about fuel prices, and that clearly is what sparked the 
fights, the, the shutdowns, they were called, in 73 and 74 and 79. So these are shutdowns. They're not strikes because these are not uh, organized Teamsters, by and large. In fact, the Teamsters were very much opposed to these, these actions. So they're mass protests by, by and large, independent truckers who were upset at the ways in which their economic fortunes had been transformed, first and foremost, by the fuel price situation. But then they spun that into much grander kind of attacks on what they saw as the kind of impact on ordinary workers of industrial capitalism. They thought that corporate capitalism was in cahoots with organized labor, was in cahoots with both Republican and Democratic politicians to basically screw the little guy. And they went out with, you know, blackjacks and knives, puncturing other truckers' tires. There are a number of bombs, pipe bombs, placed in the, the cabs of truckers who refused to participate in the shutdowns. They were violent. They were nasty. And yet they seem to express this, this sense of exasperation among these working class, blue collar truck drivers who felt they'd been left out of the, the American dream in many ways. And what were they asking for? Good question. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, so, you know, you've got a kind of inchoate movement. There's a lot of conflicting demands, but Mike Parkhurst, because he uh, edits this magazine, Overdrive, that gets a lot of attention, he gets called before Congress, and he articulates this vision that deregulation, that getting rid of the oversight of the Interstate Commerce Commission, which had been applied to the motor industry since 1935, if you could get rid of that, it would open up competition, it would let capitalism thrive, and by, by his lights, that meant kind of small-scale individual proprietorship rather than large-scale corporate capitalism. And uh, they get part of what they want or part of what he wants, right? The deregulation in the 1980s. What, what in 1980, right. what exactly does that mean for truckers? Right. So these independent truckers, their calls for deregulation are coming at the same time as more policy-oriented calls for deregulation from from the Ford administration, the Nixon administration, and especially the Carter administration, actually, all are under the influence of a number of figures, including some economists who are trying to fight inflation, so drive down prices, um, and meet consumer demand. So another key figure here is actually Ted Kennedy, Senator Edward Kennedy, all of whom see the, the possibility of getting rid of kind of New Deal era regulations that limited competition. As I said, that was the intent. If they could open up competition that would drive prices down, that would defeat inflation, and it would enable consumers to buy more goods, it seemed like a win-win situation. Of course, what's missing from that equation is the impacts on organized labor. So the Teamsters fought very hard against deregulation. They knew exactly what the consequences of, of deregulation would be. And in fact, in 1980, when Congress passed and Carter signed the Motor Carrier Act, there was substantial deregulation implemented that really sent the, the Teamsters into pretty much permanent decline. It did open up rampant competition again in the industry, such that many of those independent truck drivers who had called for deregulation suddenly found themselves competing so much. Price Freight rates were going down so much, they were like, oh, well, actually, maybe we could get a little bit of regulation back, but... It was too late. So what happens to the um, to the economic prospects of the independent long-haul trucker post-1980? 
Well, broadly speaking, you've got an industry that is increasingly atomized. So, you know, you've got a lot more small scale firms, some of which then kind of reconsolidate. But then many of the others doing trucking are actually subcontractors. And there's kind of these many layers of subcontracting such that the the drivers who are now so-called independent truck drivers generally don't own their own vehicles. They're, they're put on kind of... Um, lease programs where if they drive long enough, they might have a chance to own their own truck. So they're kind of drawn in with this, this American dream vision of being, you know, owner operators who are going to, you know, control their destiny. But by and large, it's very sweated work. There's a lot of debt peonage. People sign these contracts, they get, you know, what they think is basically free training to do a job that they understand to be difficult. But they think that, you know, if they put in the, the hours and the effort, they'll, they'll come out as, you know, owners of their own destiny, and they don't. It's a grim business. I am wondering what to make of that. I mean, they got what they want, but not really. So, you know, one of the things that you grapple with in your book is like, what kind of influences this independent long-haul owner-operator culture? Is it, you know, economic necessity? Is it culture war? Is it false consciousness is, I mean, what is it? I mean, what, what exactly do you think accounted for what they pushed for? And what do we make of the fact that they didn't seem to really get what they want? I use at the end, you know, a line from Karl Marx that we all live in a world not entirely of our own making. And that's very much true. So in a way, I often feel like when I, when I do interviews like this, that I'm, I'm being push to say that it's really these long haul truckers and someone like Mike Parkhurst who made it all happen. Right. No, I, I think consumer demand for cheap food and cheap products is what made it happen. The real push for deregulation comes from people like Ted Kennedy. Uh, you know, he's, he's the one who's actually helping write the legislation and make sure it gets passed through Congress, right? Which is all about driving down consumer prices and tackling inflation. It's not really about the truck drivers themselves. So in a sense, I mean, the truck drivers are in part along for the ride, even if they're driving the truck. That was Shane Hamilton. He is senior lecturer in the University of York's management school. That's the York in England, not the one in Ontario. His book is called Trekking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy. Cars and trucks built our modern world. There's the political economy of it, there's the cultural politics of it, and there's also the built form. That last part, that part is especially hard to notice because we're kind of like fish in water. We don't realize just how much our world is shaped by cars. But that was a conscious choice, and a choice that took real design imaginary. The early theorists of cars and car culture they were imagining a new technological utopia. Gabrielle Esperdy calls this vision an autopia. And her new book is called American Autopia, an intellectual history of the American roadside at mid-century. Yeah, the automobile utopia. Yeah, I mean, it enters um, probably popular consciousness to the extent that it, it is even there through Disneyland. I think it interestingly, it also enters architectural discourse through Disneyland because very early on, the historian and critic Rainer Banham, who wrote famously his book about Los Angeles and a 
documentary for the BBC called Rainer Bannum Loves Los Angeles, which was very much a kind of radical position at that time. Bannum ends his book on Los Angeles with a chapter called Autopia, taking it from the name of the Disney theme park. But that actually, as it turns out, was not the first use of it. There was uh, there were Autopias. Uh, there was a, a motel, a roadside motel, I think in Arizona, that had called itself Autopia. Disney's Imagineers seize on that as a, a kind of name for this highway-themed ride in Disneyland. And ironically, it is very much, the uh, as it exists in Tomorrowland, it is very much a kind of, if you figure when Disneyland opens in the 50s, it's meant to be a, a kind of taste of the future at kitty scale because it is a limited access motorway. Um, so they're able to travel kind of free of traffic, free of encumbrances, free of cars turning into the motorway. And of course, it's designed prior to the emergence of the post-war interstate systems and the national highways that are built after World War II. So it really is an attempt to think about the centrality of the car in our collective future. It's so difficult to think about you, Autopia now because... Uh, it's funny having this conversation because this weekend I went out of town. I went to Prince Edward County, which is about two hours outside of Toronto. It was nice, but getting there and getting back was absolutely miserable. I mean, the highways are terrible here. And no matter where you are in this sort of cultural divide of like, do you love cars? Do you hate cars? You are mad about, you know, this is definitely not an utopia. I mean, it's one of the political issues in this provincial election. So to sort of take us back to before everyone was sort of uh, angry and frustrated and resentful uh, about our highway system and the the car-dominated form. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that Autopia. I mean, like, was it purely the kind of thing that, that came sort of top-down from people like Disney, from the kind of policy that encouraged that sort of suburban sprawl? Or was this something that kind of captured the broad public imaginary? Yeah, it's the latter. Obviously, consumer desire and the drive of individuals is always shaped to some extent by questions of policy, by corporate marketing, and so on, and by technological evolution. But at the end of the day, I think one of the things that's so important for us to do is to take ownership of a set of decisions that people consciously, over the course of the 20th century, made, right? Made and accepted. And, and look, Henry Ford made the car accessible. In the early 20th century, cars were the playthings of rich folks. Uh, you know, they really were, I mean, the earliest highways in the United States were built, they were private roads built on the estates of Long Island, right along the Gold Coast, where the robber barons uh, built these private highways for them to zoom around and test their new, their new toys. And it would have remained that way, I think, if Henry Ford had not successfully made cars affordable. That was a critical moment. And so they, the idea of freedom, liberation, all of these putative American values were somehow aligned with the automobile. Now, of course, we can we always need to accept that there is a kind of we could describe it generously as perhaps anti-urban. We could describe it more accurately as xenophobic and racist, this idea of removing yourself from the urban crowd. 
whether that is a tramway system, whether that's a bus or a, a subway, and allowing you to enter this isolated zone, this autonomous zone of your own. So I think that's one part of it. And then, of course, policy follows suit. It ends up being almost a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Suddenly, then, everyone is dependent on cars. Yeah. I mean, one of the fascinating things about reading your book is just like sometimes I think we forget because we're kind of like a fish in water just how much of the built form does revolve around the car. And, you know, we've talked about some of these things. I mean, the suburbs, the roadside, but also shopping malls, the hamburger stand, the diner, the motel, the gas station, the truck stop. I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of those people um, and those places. I mean, one of the one of the ones that figures prominently in your book is, is the shopping mall itself, right? As mm-hmm. an idea, as a cultural space. Obviously, I mean, now you have so many, you know, various Instagram feeds about how they're dying. But I mean, t- take me back to the sort of like utopian imagination of the shopping mall. Who who imagined it and what was it meant to be? Well, we could start with Victor Gruen, who is an immigrant to this country from Austria, enters the United States uh, in the, I guess he comes in the 30s, uh, maybe late 30s, early 40s, uh, you know, generally escaping the Nazis, begins to uh, have an active practice in commercial architecture. He brings with him from Europe this idea, you know, he understands what urbanism is, right? He has a, you know, he has a very, a kind of profoundly European sense of the importance of the historic center as a place that is not only commercial, but that is cultural, as a place where civic identity is formed. He understands that it's a thing that has, that engages with multiple kinds of activities, shopping, restaurants, paying your parking tickets or whatever. When he gets to the United States, one of the things that he recognizes is that, oh, wow, people are already living outside the center. Like there's this, you know, he perceives the way in which that movement out of the center, even if we're not yet describing it fully as as kind of decentralization, you know, already by the teens and 20s, right? Certainly Mm -hmm. on the outskirts of, of cities like Toronto and New York, there are... There are neighborhoods that are not dense and and walkable in that way because they are they're just they're connected either to rail lines or to trolley lines, etc. What Gruen does is realize that the car is inevitably going to add pressure to that outward movement and that because of its ability to go anywhere, it's going to lead to what we now understand as a level of leapfrog development And what Mm. he became really fascinated with was this idea of creating almost traditional, a traditional notion of community in those places where they didn't exist. So the shopping mall for him is never just a place to shop. He really imagines it. And that's why in so many places you see shopping malls that are called the so-and-so town center, even though there's no town (laughs) and this is not a center. But it was because in Gruen's conceptualization, that's what it was meant to be. And sure, it started out with shopping, but his early malls always had community facilities, whether they were rooms that you could meet in. Sometimes they had churches. I I grew up within the city of Philadelphia, but on the Northwest periphery. And there was a Victor Gruen shopping mall five miles away that had a church. It had community rooms. It also had, because he was so committed to this idea of these places being more than simply where you went to buy sweat socks or whatever, it also included professional plazas. 
So why not go shopping for clothes, but also be able to go to the doctor or the dentist or your lawyer or whatever? So he really did imagine these as new centers. And he's also building on what had already been for a couple of decades. There had already been this attempt to create an alternative to just the strip development that we're all aware of, you know, just like another strip and another strip and another strip of stores. Architects had already begun to think through other ways of accommodating shoppers and their vehicles. And Gruen picks up on those trends of kind of shopping plaza design and really just pushes it um, uh, kind of fully to, I guess we could say, a level of maturity, you know, that it reaches in, dare I say it, in like the West Edmonton Ball or Okay. <laughs> I mean, those places, you, you, there, there is a clear genealogy, clear genealogy. Mm. What, what are some of the other, I mean, I mentioned a few, but I mean, which of the kinds of buildings, um, car-centric buildings that you find most interesting or maybe most surprising? Obviously, you know, I mentioned the hamburger stand and the motel. I was really interested in, in sort of like the service station as like also a little bit of a community hub as like almost like a tour guide. Uh, that part of your book was, was fascinating. But yeah, I mean, w- which of those kind of buildings did you find most uh, surprising, I guess, and interesting? It's not so much that any particular building type was more interesting than another. It's the degree to which every single human activity <laughs> has somehow been shaped by the car and produced what we might describe as a a formal response. And by formal, I mean a a physical form. If we think about something like garages and the, the, the shift in the location of the garage from a thing that once had been behind houses because you didn't want your smelly horses being near migrating to the front of the house, the drive-in church. I mean, these things are not like Mm. one-off things we laugh at. They're actually serious transformations of conventional building typologies. And they're they're everywhere. And they continue to proliferate. That's the thing. Now they're proliferating globally. I think when I started the research for this book in say, oh, I don't know, know, 2005 or whenever I sort of gradually was becoming interested in it, I had assumed that the kind of the automotive moment was over. And then the more the 21st century progressed, the more I realized, oh my God, like it's not over yet. I'm curious about, like you said, you kind of assumed it was over. That's the thing that, that comes up a couple times, especially mm-hmm. in the 1970s in the oil embargo. And I found it interesting in your book, you looked at some popular writing and some theorists that kind of heralded this as the end of the automobile and 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 really the end of American culture as such. I mean, because of how how much it had dominated the everyday life of everyday Americans. Could you take me sort of a little bit back to that time? But why were people saying that? I mean, obviously, and it didn't happen as such. So, so why not? <laughs> well, I think there were two main issues. One was coming to terms with the negative impact of cars on the built environment in terms, in in very literal ways, in terms of pollution, in terms of trash. So that's one part of this. There's a kind of, let's call it a, a dawning awareness that maybe we could make other choices. And then the oil embargo happens. And so, a, you know, a series of embargoes that then, of course, because, you know, in the United States, at least, because 
why not try to squeeze profit out of a bad situation? <laughs> Uh, the uh, the oil companies uh, and the refineries in the United States, they start to try and squeeze it even more in order to jack up the prices. And there really is this grave concern. What's going to happen if we don't have access to oil? Like, how will this, how will the country function? Because so many people had had so completely become automobile dependent. And so there is this, fervor of intellectual commentary that, okay, this is it. This is the Rubicon and it's going to end. We don't have any choice. It's when Japan slips in with its small gas efficient cars. And so there is this moment, right? That, oh, okay, maybe we don't have to give up our cars. Maybe we just have to give up our gas guzzling cars. And so again, you can see a kind of the US culture doing this calculation. I wanted to end on something that we've touched on a couple of times, but the electric car and how the electric car sort of, let's just kind of keep going. And maybe by introduction, I just wanted to read something that shows up at the end of your book, which I thought was really uh, fitting here. Um, Right now, while enthusiasts are fetishizing a bygone autopia, seeing in its uh, monuments and artifacts a more innocent automotive age, Roadside theorists are imagining Utopia anew regarding electric and autonomous vehicles and car sharing and ride hailing as the fulfillment of a long-sought promise, the possibility of perfectibility in the territories of the automobile. I guess one of the things that struck me reading this passage, but also thinking about the 70s and some of the theorists that you quote in how kind of dire they are about the death of Autopia and how we're entering into a new age or we have to enter into a new age. Yet now, today, the challenges are even more grave. I mean, gas prices are high. The environmental impacts are more and more obvious and more and more dire. Yet, it's not every day you see the sort of end of car culture hand wringing. You actually see a lot more about the optimist. Oh, we can make an electric truck or we can do this. So there seems to be more of a kind of electric utopia than there even was in the 70s when people were, were writing about the demise of the car. What do you think accounts for that, that difference, if, if, if that's a fair characterization? I think it is a fair characterization. And I, I think that the issue is that The electric vehicle, if we'll use that as our main way of describing this moment, the electric vehicle is very much like the Japanese import in the 70s. It's -hmm. this notion of, yeah, yeah, we got this. We don't have to change anything except shift to electric. And that's why I wanted to end on a kind of a cautionary note that literally we've been down this road before and that we all know that If we all had electric vehicles, it's not actually going to solve our social problems. If we all had electric vehicles, it's not going to solve, in fact, our environmental problems. Again, it's about this refusal to recognize our capitulation to the automobile. That was Gabrielle Esperdy. She's from the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and she is professor at their Hillier College of Architecture and Design. Her new book is called American Autopia, an intellectual history of the American roadside at mid-century. 
And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode was part of a wider series that looks at the politics of technology and techno-utopian thinking. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The scholarly leads are Professors Tanner Merlees at Ontario Tech University and Imra Zeman at the University of Waterloo. They both provided research and editorial guidance to this episode. We are also backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening.